Hello and welcome. I am your host, Kirsty, and this is Leadership Odysseys. We're embarking on a mission to bridge the gap between aspiration and reality, offering a raw and unfiltered exploration of the behind the scenes challenges that shape true leadership. Join us as we share stories of resilience, turning points, and authentic human experiences that remind us greatness is a product of the entire odyssey, not just the destination. Get ready for an episode that delves deep into the complexities of the human mind and the art of thriving in life. Our guest today, Lissy Abrahams, is not just a relationship expert, she's a compassionate guide on the journey to understanding oneself. Lissy's initiation into the intricacies of the human mind began at the age of 15 when her mother, a lawyer, shared stories of courtroom dramas highlighting the strengths, vulnerabilities and the struggles of children caught in parental crossfires. This unique exposure ignited Lissy's passion for psychology and set her on the path of exploration. Venturing to London, Lissy has handpicked as one of the candidates for a master's program in the psychoanalytics psychotherapy for couples at Tavistock Relationships, a world-renowned institution. Following a rigorous four-year training, she emerged not only as a couples therapist, but also as a tutor and lecturer, contributing significantly to the field. Returning to Sydney, Lissy founded the Heath Group Practice, a therapy clinic reaching clients worldwide. Her academic publications, leadership roles in Psychotherapy Association and contribution to Mamma Mia's health expert panel underscore her expertise. Lissy firmly believes that everyone possesses the potential to enhance their lives and relationships with the right knowledge and strategies. In this episode, we're going to unravel Lissy's unique journey, gaining insights into the complexities of couples and more importantly, the vital aspect of cultivating a healthy relationship with oneself. So stay tuned for a conversation that goes beyond the ordinary and delves into the extraordinary world of self-discovery and thriving relationships. This is not your typical episode. This is a journey into the mind with our remarkable guest, Lizzie Abrahams. Welcome, Lizzie, to Leadership Odysseys. I am so thrilled to have you on the show and really can't wait to delve deep in today's episode as we explore the intricate dynamics of relationships and the profound journey of self-discovery. Oh, thank you so much. It's awesome to meet with you today. Oh, it's fantastic. And we met, it was probably about a few months ago now at one of Tori Archbold's events and we've had some incredible conversations since then. So totally. Clicked it straight away. Clicked in. 100%. Well, I am very, very excited. So we're sitting here today at your fabulous home and it's we've got lots of birds chirping around us as well. So hopefully some of that magical sound will actually come through for our audience but let's dive straight into it so where did your journey begin who is Lucy okay so my journey began in Canberra many many decades ago where I was born the youngest of three children my parents were both immigrants from England and they met over here Uh, mum was 15 and my dad was 18 so they had two kids and we were in Canberra my mum wanted a daughter so badly she decided to roll the dice one more time and out I came so I came into a family that was quirky um, sparky intelligent lively and a lot of love we all loved to laugh and to find the silly in life. And it was a family where my parents worked incredibly hard. They actually had very little when I was growing up. And they, you know, there were lots of family dynamics around what that meant, not having money as a young family, the pressures of daily life. And so there was quite a lot of conflict in my family as well. But underpinning all of it, there was this foundation of love, which I felt every day as well. What was interesting with my being the youngest of two older brothers is I always wanted to join them and 
they didn't always want me, so I had to find these creative ways to kind of lift my game and step up to being in an older body and mind, which I actually wasn't, but I was really tenacious and quite assertive, so I had to kind of get my needs met and make sure I met them for myself. And I was really quite, I got used to being quite uncomfortable in my skin in doing things that I wasn't, that weren't necessarily as age appropriate for a little person, but I kept going anyway. And I think that really shaped me because it then mirrored something that happened at school where being, my surname starting with A, I was often at the top of the role. And teachers used to go down the role and just pick you to do things. And being one of the first all the time, I just got used to being really quite uncomfortable and giving things a go. So that was just this feature that I, I, I really inhabit today, that I give things a go face fears, jump in. And I actually quite like that part. I'm not saying it's easy though. Um, Having courage, it's a, it is a big one for a lot of people and, and through our whole entire journey of life as well. Yeah, even when you don't feel courageous. Yes. <laughs> That's a part of it as well. And I think that another really a big shaping of my childhood and what happened to me as I was older is my parents had a family, they had a close friend who died at the age of 38 and I was 10 years old. And that was really shocking for us because nobody did, you know, that was so unheard of at the time. And our world. So my parents really were able to understand how precious life is. And three weeks after this friend died, my parents had taken money out of their mortgage and borrowed the money and took us on a family holiday of five weeks overseas. So three weeks later, we were on a plane. It was this commitment to living, even if they couldn't really afford it and just wanted to have experiences. So I think that is really a big part of where I am in life as well, whether it's overseas or starting a business in whatever form it is you know I'm looking for adventures yeah looking for the ability to make the most out of every situation by the sounds of Mm. it and and definitely get the the most out of life I think that's a very valuable point like the the treadmill is coming up a lot as I talk through a lot of stories but we can actually end up on this treadmill that just keeps going and going and going and forgetting to have a bit of fun yeah. along the way and make the most yeah. of it. We all work so hard and, you know, to be able to find that time or commit to yourself to actually have that courage to go, you know what, we're just going to do it. Let's Absolutely. go. <laughs> and there's another part which is, you know, when we're on that treadmill, we're actually forgetting what we're doing on this planet. And if we if we step out of our day-to-day lives and actually marvel at this huge universe we're in and with this tiny, tiny little bit of energy in the universe it's when we actually get to see that then we have to remember there is something so precious about what we're doing and being on the treadmill is not precious that's just the daily grind so it's important to step back be connected to a bigger kind of reason why we're here than just I've got to get through the day and you find yourself within that journey as well when you're doing those trips or when you're doing something a bit more adventurous or courageous like you really you've learned so much about who you actually are as a person. I don't know if that's the time or what it, meeting different people, but it's definitely something that brings out the best in people. Yeah, you meet different parts of yourself. Mm. You're meeting different parts of yourself that are experimenting, that are, yeah, just it's, it's another part that can come alive yeah. that in our day-to-day lives we might not see. I remember my husband and I, we, we used to own a, a franchise business back in the day. In our early 20s, we had bought a Gloria Jean's coffee store and we got married and went on our honeymoon. And we'd been working since leaving school, which, you know, doesn't seem like a long time. But when you, you know, that your late teens, early 20s and, and you've worked your whole way through, we came back from our honeymoon and, and made a, a very courageous decision to sell everything and pack one bag and buy around the world ticket and head overseas for six months hand on heart when anyone's ever asked me for advice in life I've said that is the best thing we ever did that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) and how wonderful you got to do that together because that stays in your relationship as is as something that you really created together my daughter's doing exactly that in 10 days time she's heading out similar thing I don't know how I'd feel on the reverse as the parent side (laughs) it's challenging (laughs) That's that's courageous. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So your childhood, you had this great childhood, ready to dive into everything and anything, really trying to keep up with your two older brothers. 
what happened next? What was the next stage of life for you? Well, after I finished school, I went and lived in, I studied at university first and I did teaching there, but then I went to live in Berlin. And this was six months after the Berlin Wall had come down that I was there. So I was completely fascinated by a city and a country that had been so divided. And I just absolutely loved learning German. I went to study there at the, at the Deutsche Institute and um, the Goethe Institute, sorry. And then I was fascinated by the history. So I was always riding a bike over to East Berlin and looking at the changes as it was just bit by bit becoming westernised. I was fascinated by what had happened and what could that, that something could be constructed like that. And then when I came home, I really wanted to get on my path and I studied I did a Bachelor of Science majoring in psychology and that was where I really started to work on my path to where I am today that was a really big part of it but in my training that I was doing I always felt like there was something missing and it was I studied cognitive behavior therapy and I'm not having a go at that for some people it's fantastic but for me I couldn't quite connect with why we were doing it and it's very much about altering like checking out if something's true and altering your reality But for me, it didn't answer the question of, well, why am I even thinking this in the first place? And that's what really excites me is understanding what are the unconscious motivations? Why why are we programmed in this way to think the thoughts that we have? Where do they come from? And that's what I got to do later on. That's a... big shift for you in in what at least being aware of that as well of what wasn't actually resonating 100% Mm. to you to then really be able to ask yourself more questions to dive into where your heart truly wanted to find the answers yeah and I got so lucky because I went to London and I got all of those answers in abundance and that's what at the Tavistock Tavistock relationships I just reveled in every minute of it yeah great so you were were over in London then and now and you you were able to really dive into that next phase of your career or study at Mm. that particular point in time did that you know what was the the big moments over there the big moments were having a couple of amazing mentors I had people who really believed in me and kept kind of asking me to step into roles that I hadn't done before. So once again, that discomfort, but they, their encouragement and their, their sense that I could do it really meant a lot to me. I had great trainers as well. So I feel like I got a really amazing training to understand why do people think the way they think? Yeah, I, as, a, as a child, I never understood that we had a could even ask that question. But Why as do I, they think the way they think? We've been programmed. <laughs> we've actually been programmed. And a lot of the programming, especially about our relationships, has happened by the ages of 12 to 18 months old. Like we, we have this, it's, it's incredible. Like we don't know what we don't know. And what we don't know is by 12 to 18 months, we have a, what's called like a relational template that we run our relationships off. And some things have been altered in that template over time, but so much of it is retained from childhood through our relationship with our parents to what happens when we're in adult committed relationships. And whatever happened to us when we were young has been encoded into that template. So we've got all this information that through these micro moments, thousands and thousands of them with our parents, thousands of them, and great stuff and unhappy stuff and connected stuff and disconnected and frustrating and upsetting for some people neglect trauma that's all encoded and so all of that comes into our adult relationships and it's going to affect what we react to what we believe how we run our relationships whether we sit down and discuss something or whether we give our partner the silent treatment it's where we're like just pre-programmed relational beings that we say this is me this is who I am but it's actually not it's a program that's it's a I think not hard to fathom, but it is, it's a very interesting one to really take that on board and really understand because a lot of people wouldn't remember anything about that first to 12 to 18 months. How do people really try and take that on and understand that and ask the questions around it to identify who they are? That is an incredibly fabulous question because we don't know because there's childhood amnesia from the ages of seven, under seven. We pretty much don't remember the day-to-day life, but we remember extraordinary events. Like I forgot my teddy bear at kindy and I really remember that extraordinary event for a child. The thing is we don't have to actually remember the events. Our mind and body keep the score. It means where those experiences leave a mark on us that our behaviour tells a story. So if we become... If we're really secure, we were secure in childhood, 
then our behaviour to people, friends, our colleagues at work, our partner, is going to be really pretty secure and trusting. If it wasn't as secure as, you know, giving giving us enough sufficient security, what's going to happen is things will play out where we might mistrust a partner, check their phones, become suspicious, we might become controlling, we might, you know, cause become very reactive with them. So our behaviour tells us what actually happened when we were younger. And because these experiences endure inside of us, it's like a cellular memory, it endures inside of us, we have a story of our behaviour, even if we don't remember the original events. And so this was, you're over in London, you've gone to this incredible you know, facility to be able to learn all of this information and be surrounded by exceptional mentors. And you're, you found yourself really intrigued with being able to answer that key question. How have you taken that to kind of evolve to where you are today? So I will say it was very hard leaving London because it was such a developmental place for me. So my first night I came back and I was sitting around with my in-laws and my family uh, family, and I just put my head on the table and burst into tears. It was like, I just want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) I, I hadn't built up anything here yet and I just really wanted to go back. But what happened over time, within a short period of time, I created my own clinic. So I didn't have any colleagues here, so I created a space where I could invite other clinicians to come and join me so I had a I had a a supportive group around me and we could all share our work and support each other which was amazing and then three years ago after my youngest daughter had finished school I really wanted to start a business and find ways for my work to go beyond the consulting room because so much happens in, in a small space and there's a limited number of people who can get the help. And so I just thought, right, I'm going to put this out in all different ways. And that's why I wrote my book, Relationship Reset. I've got two, I created two online programs for couples. One's called Fight Less, Love More and the other's Transforming Couple Communication. And then I thought, hold on a minute, we need to go back to, it's, oh, sorry, just quickly, all of the work that I do is very much about our own self-responsibility how we bring ourselves to our relationships. It's not how do I stop my partner being a creep. It's actually how do I, what am I doing and what's about my relational template? What happened to me when I was younger and why am I treating my partner like that? So for me, it's getting behind the relationship into one's individual stuff that is really critical. And so that's what my passion is. And I've got a new course coming out called Healthy Minded and Unraveling the Mysteries of the Mind because I want us to just get back into what are we doing? We all need to do it because otherwise we create chaos everywhere. I suppose how how do people start though? Where, where is that starting point? Because you've gone on this journey and, you know, you're, you're definitely out there trying to help as many people and there's so many incredible courses. But what is that starting point for one individual that goes you know what I do I want to be able to really understand who I am understand my childhood experiences understand why I am behaving this way as an adult uh, whether that be in a relationship or in the workplace so there's lots of ways actually so it's a great question because people can listen to podcasts there are lots of podcasts around this there's also therapy if people really want to kind of get into the intricacies of their own mind and their behaviour, which will then share what's going on, then therapy can be fantastic for them. A lot of people, they're happy to do online courses. They're happy to do it at their own pace and in a convenient way. But it could also be a combination of all of them. Mm. It depends how deeply people want to go into it. And, of course, there's books as well out there. Yeah, so interesting. I have so many questions on this, I think, as we... (laughs) Hit me up. (laughs) No, even myself, and and I'm definitely starting to share, you know, bits and pieces of my own journey throughout the podcast, but I actually spent a lot of my childhood in hospital, especially that first 12 to 18 months, but very much up until I was 12 years of age as well. So I suppose as I'm hearing you talk about your childhood experiences, I, you know, I spent endless months at a time in you know the children's ward at multiple hospitals and you kind of you I'm sitting here even thinking going oh you know I've got a very high resilience and is that coming from that journey (laughs) (laughs) of all the poking and prodding and major surgeries and everything that I had in the first decade of my life 
yeah, really stopping and actually reflecting on that because it is, it's, it's resilience. It's being able to deal with pain. It's being able to deal with judgment of, you know, going back into school grounds and being different mm. and, mm. you know, all those things. Interesting. It's a really interesting question because one of the things that's also encoded by that age of 12 to 18 months and you had that go on for longer is this question of if I'm secure enough, if I'm not quite secure enough, what do I do? with that how do I express that and there's three main ways it's called insecure attachment but it's really interesting what you're saying because it could go to one of two ways and it could just be pure resilience it could be that you've got this ability to show up and put your big brave face on or it could be something else and I'll just quickly explain what this means so for, for the children who are who were less secure in childhood and it could be that their parents had a lot of financial stress, they fought a lot, could have been illness with one of the parents, could have been your own illness. And I'm not going to say for you what it is because I don't know enough about it, but you can yeah. maybe see. But the kids, there were three particular patterns of the insecurity. And one of the patterns is that these children, when they experienced some distress and their parents sort of gave them sufficient, insufficient sort of hit and miss, unreliable attention and comfort what would happen is they couldn't really rely on their parents showing up all the time for them but when they did show up for them when they were upset and tried to soothe them these kids could become quite clingy to the parent like I'm not going to let you go because I'm not sure if you're going to disappear again but they could also be quite angry with them so they could they could cling like a little koala but hit them at the same time now I'm not this is not about pathologizing these kids this is a worldwide phenomena if kids don't quite have enough, they've got a way. It's a strategy. I've got you, but I'm going to show you I'm angry with you for not giving me the comfort I need and that I can rely on all the time. Then there's another group of kids, and these kids, they, be, they have this kind of pseudo-independence. It's like they don't even look to their parents to comfort them anymore because they have learnt that their parents aren't there. Now, your parents may have been there and shown up all the time, so that and might they be were. very different. <laughs> so yours might be a very different and more secure sort of sense of it. But for other kids, if they didn't, parents didn't show up, then they deactivate that calling out to their parents. And so they learnt to do everything internally. So it's not the independence you're talking about. It's a pseudo-independent state. And we see this in the workplace all the time. I see it like a fortress. They just go into themselves, deal with it themselves. They don't talk about it to anybody. They don't want to know what the feelings are. They just kind of shut it all off. And that's a childhood strategy because yeah, wow. they've learned, I can't rely on someone. We see this all the time. I see it in relationships all the time too. And then there's another third group and they're very traumatised and they don't know how to respond to their parents. They just kind of collapse at their feet. They've had it. There's been neglect or abuse in some way. And so they're very confused about what, how to get any comfort from their parents. So they just dissolve in a way into distress. So what's, what you're saying is your parents were there all the time. So yours is probably a more secure, resilient, yeah, sort of experience, whereas there's this pattern for other kids and we take those patterns, the secure ones and the insecure ones, into our adult relationships yeah, and right. play them out. It kind of makes you, like, there needs to be more of that discussion, isn't there, yeah. on actually getting people to naturally just talk about their, their journey and to be able to, to really dive into it and, and get that, especially if you're going on that leadership journey within a workplace mm. of being able to have that support along the way so that you do build a whole new muscle of understanding of, of self-love. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't know that you're, you're carrying all of this, you can't unload it out of your system. It's, it's with you in all of those interactions. You carry it to work with you. You take it to home with you. You take it to your children. It's, it's there. And there's a way of actually working this out of your system very intriguing. I, there's yeah, so much to dive into. So your book, though, Relationship Reset, covers the intricacies of conflict within the relationships. What are some of those common defence mechanisms that do come through in individuals and how do these impact the dynamics between partners? So what we talk about with ego defence mechanisms, they're avoidance mechanisms. So they're strategies we have unconsciously. We have no idea we're using them. So we don't deliberately use these at all. But these are strategies that whenever our mind can't tolerate what's in front of us, it will do something. It's like we've got this unconscious toolkit that we just sort of throw something out to help us out. And it's really, we don't know we're doing it. So that the first is drawing awareness to them. It could be, so one of them is denial. Whenever we have information that's just too much for us to bear in a moment, 
we can our, our unconscious tool can be we just deny the reality of it and we often see this say with if there's news of a terminal illness or someone's died we go into a kind of disbelief and say no no, no that, that couldn't have happened and it's not that we're doing it on purpose we're not choosing it it's that denial has these processes that just protect us because it's too overwhelming in that moment so in the workplace it could be that you know somebody's accused you of something but then the mind will just go no way I haven't done that I'm going to protect myself but actually we might have done something that's right or someone else's perception is very different to yours as well so actually you you consciously might not have but it actually has come through in that manner to someone else and they've felt that yeah and the thing is it's really important with denial that we haven't chosen to lie consciously it's this thing inside of us that just goes no I'm not taking that in I'm not going to deal with that now it's very protective though as well so I don't want to demonize these they're just not helpful longer term if you keep them going but denial is one another one that I see between couples frequently is regression and this is where we if we don't like what's happening say what our partner says their opinion of us their tone of voice something can happen where we revert to an earlier childhood stage and our behavior then becomes one where we might tantrum sulk whine complain and this happens a lot in relationships I see it a lot but it's not that people are wanting to do that it's just that that's where they go because that's where one of the difficulties were of maturing later on. They didn't get that maturity through to be able to handle it now. And then as it, like for relationships, how would be a good way to approach that, to actually, one, identify yourself, how you actually handle, whether it be conflict or, you know, different things that could prompt different emotions, but the other side of being able to have that honest conversation with your partner to let them know how you feel when that emotion does arise they it's really helpful if a partner can help point it out but not in the middle of an argument (laughs) that's the thing because otherwise that'll just cause an argument like we don't know we don't we have to know that we're actually regressing to actually catch ourselves regressing and the more we know we're doing it it's like oh hold on why am I curled up in the fetal position or why am I raising my voice like that why don't I just use my adult voice we learn that we don't have to rely on these tools that have always been a part of our you know our way of being but we actually don't need to do that we can breathe through a moment we can take a pause we can gather ourselves up we can do some mindfulness to say oh actually maybe there's another perspective here or maybe this isn't such a threat to me so it's how do we gather ourselves up so that we can bring our adult self back to the reality so that we're not needing an ego defense mechanism to protect us and then we become much more resilient and can handle all sorts of things in life really differently. I think on that ego is probably a big one Mm -hmm. within that space. Is that something throughout your study that you have seen that ego does play a a big role in in making decisions? It's everything. I think it's everything because the way that our ego operates, it's always trying to – it's about um, our identity, our sense of self. And we're social animals, so how others see us – We want to be seen in a positive light most of the time. So our ego, we take it everywhere and we've got an opinion about absolutely everything. But it's going to dictate what we say, how we show up, how we don't show up. It's going to dictate whether we take action in one one way or whether we scream the house down or whether we go and tell our boss to go stop themselves. You know, it is going to dictate everything and so once we understand that our ego is actually not me we think it's me it sounds like me we say I and me and mine and everything's framed from our own perspective but it's actually not me I am a whole entity and the ego is just a bunch of cells in our left hemisphere that if we were to kind of zap them we could still get on and live pretty pretty well it's pretty powerful so we have to learn to identify what's going on in there What have I created? How much suffering do I create for myself? Do you think denial kicks into that ego side though as well where a lot of people a lot of people say they don't have an ego it's a a big thing you hear in uh, any work environment I feel but they absolutely do but that's an ego statement in itself I don't have an ego (laughs) (laughs) it's huge (laughs) it is like it's not it's not to say that one's ego is necessarily inflated because 
you know, the ego can have fantastic attributes, but we have an ego. We have, we need it to put ourselves forward for things. We have to think that we've got enough skills to go for a job interview for, you know, trying to have a kid and raising them in a safe enough way. We have to have an ego that doesn't, that means we don't end up lying under a bridge and not doing anything for the day. So we don't want to demonize the ego. We need an ego. It's, it's self-protective to have one. It's just when it goes too far that it can, we can be lying to ourselves, lying to others about what we're lying to ourselves yeah, about as well. Very um, true. The stories we create, the suffering we create, the things we put on other people, the way we talk about ourselves, you know, that's a huge one. I, I can't tell you the number of people who I see who have what I call the whip and it's an internal whip about how they talk to themselves. And we, most people would never talk to anybody in the way that they talk to themselves and it's so very true. So mean. And it can be trained out of you. And that's the thing. It's once you realize that you're being mean to yourself, that you're calling yourself stupid, idiot, worse names than that, you know, once you we draw awareness to it, people can put the whip down, do something else with that. And that just alters what happens next. So it's critical to identify what is our ego doing, how does what are the patterns? Yeah, and the role it really plays in, in choices and, and how we show up. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Mm. So you've got denial, regression. There's so many of them. Ego. <laughs> so, the, yeah, these are all ego defence mechanisms. There's um, sublimation, and this is one we'll see in the workplace a lot. A lot of people who want to avoid how they're feeling about situations, they will bypass these emotional experiences by taking it to work and they'll just go, okay, fine, and they'll sit down and they'll do a big piece of work. So it might look like it's really productive but what have they done with the emotional content? They've just stuffed it in somewhere. And one of the things is if we keep stuffing down emotional things that distress us, that can lead to a lot of dis-ease in our system. And if we keep doing that for years and years and years on end, decades, that can lead to disease in the system. So we don't really want to be suppressing emotions. We want to have a healthy vehicle for working them through, breathing through them, letting things pass, removing it from our system, not just stuffing it down. Another way of sublimating is to go to the gym. So you say you've had a big fight with your partner, just buggering off to the gym, working it out. It looks healthy, but it's not actually dealing with the issue. Yeah, it's avoidant. Right. So what would be like some tips for people in that? Because I would say that's a, that's a big one, especially in your 30s and 40s as well, where you're right in the heat of just everything's happening, right? You, you're building, whether it be financially, your career, family, you know, raising children, so many commitments happening around you. But what's some tips to really dive into that and actually bring that to your own fruition to, to become aware of it? A lot of people in a relationship, their partner will tell them, you're just running off to work. <laughs> or why do you always go to the gym? We never get to resolve anything. So if you listen to your partner, they might share with you what you're doing. Why do you always deny what you're saying? Why are you acting like a baby? They might throw at you. <laughs> and it, it might sound horrible, but it's but important to listen to it. Mm. One's partner or the workplace might reflect that back at you. Hey, Jess, why don't you go home sometime? You know, what are you doing here? Why were you in on a Sunday? Like there's, there's, there's clues, but we have to be open to that. We all, we all use ego defense mechanisms in some way. It's not to demonize them compartmentalization is a really big one and that can be really healthy if you've got a big presentation but you've just heard some news that's really uncomfortable sometimes you just want to stuff it somewhere just to get through the moment but you don't want to leave it there for too long because that then creates that dis-ease in the system yeah gosh it is it's definitely something people need to spend that little bit of time and and thinking through and, and being able to be truthful within their own relationships whatever that may look like of being able to go actually I've got the courage to say this yeah as well and what happens when you do that is your whole your ego changes that you don't have to just worry about self-protection all the time because so much is feared we fear so much about what other people think about us we fear stepping out of line stepping in this direction or exposing ourselves once you understand the workings of the ego everything changes it's actually through that that I started my business it meant that I could step out of my consulting room too and put the messages out in different ways because I realised that fear is a story too. 
really is. Fear mm. is definitely a, a very big story. Mm. So on that note then, what was what was that mindset shift for you? Like how did you go on that transition to, to really diving into that and wanting to be more curious about fear? It was an interesting one. I read uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. I read 32 pages of it and I realised everything around the ego in 32 pages. Love everything you remember changed. the 32 pages. It was so it 32. clearly made an impact. It <laughs> did because I actually left the book for quite a long time and I went back to it going, oh, wow, that actually changed my life. So I often say to my clients, just read 32 pages <laughs> and you'll have the essence. But once you realise that what you call me is actually a story, that has been constructed. And now remember, that was constructed, a lot of it, by 12 to 18 months, shaped by some I'm experiences. I'm still trying to get my head around that as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> that what we think is me is actually not me. Then we are so free to redefine how we live our lives. We're, we're so free to expose the funny of what we do. And I don't want to, like I've said before, to not demonize the ego. We all have one. But what we do is if we can just catch ourselves in these moments of going, oh, you just created a fantastic story and I've got many of them. I create wonderful stories. Uh, one of my recent ones was at a health retreat. I was doing, I, I don't, didn't, it was my first time I'd been to one. I was on day three of Tai Chi and all of a sudden I was somehow feeling I was so much better than everybody else. I was, I was making a comparison and I was superior somehow and I had heard that Tai Chi masters take decades to create, but suddenly day three, I was doing so well. But what I smiled at inside of myself after that was, why did I do this? Why would I create such a crazy little story? And why did you? Because I was anxious. I was going mm -hmm. to be filming my first course at that time. Soon afterwards, I had a date in the diary for when I got back that I had put in that morning. And I was really anxious. So my ego created a story to bolster me into something that I could feel really good about myself because the anxiety, you know, I couldn't attend to it at that point. So once I realised I had a lovely little smile at my ego and said, thanks for letting me know that I'm actually anxious. I can deal with anxiety. So it's a similar fear or, or not fear feeling of anxiety to excitement as well? I think in that instance it was just blocking it. Okay. It was like it was like stuffing it away somewhere else and turning it into something a little bit more manic, perhaps. Yeah. So that could be the excitement, but it's 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 transforming it into something else that actually can make no sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to understand how your mind works to be able to make that connection. Otherwise, what else might have I have done that day if I hadn't caught it early? Mm. Would I have played out superior stuff somewhere else, or would I have then gone into an inferior mode? Because that would have also spoken to the anxiety. So would I then be judging myself differently and in quite a harsh way? So it could swing in either way, but the, the root of it was the anxiety. But it's what you do with that is the defence mechanism that actually is just moving it away from dealing with the fact that it exists. Right. And that's where we can create suffering. So if I had not understood myself, I might have been pulled out my whip and given myself a few lashings about how terrible I am at certain things. Could have gone the other way. What happens is that I could create, anyone can create these elaborate stories that can go on and on, or I might make other people really inadequate. I might meet people and just think, oh, what a loser. And we can do this in the workplace, and say, all over a, the place. That's a big one in the workplace. Isn't like it? When you think of, you know, politics, and I think that word can be thrown around misleadingly as well. But definitely, I know for myself over the years, when a politics does happen, it absolutely happens because of egos and because people are actually wanting to ensure that they're positioning themselves correctly as well. And as if they haven't gone on that maturity of self-development, definitely can weight a lot of people down versus enhancing them and, and lifting them up. I think it was one of the biggest lessons I I learnt very quickly and it was that when someone is, you know, if you're walking into that room and someone, you know, is trying to either pull you down or, or not set you up for success, just go and give them a big hug. <laughs> they, they probably are just having a really shit day themselves and they're probably really scared and intimidated mm. as well and actually, you know, don't take it personally. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> what a great realisation. It's all about them. Yeah. And you could see that and I love that solution of go and give them a big hug because otherwise that's just going to keep spilling and spilling. Their fear is making them that's do right. that. They actually need the support. They actually yeah. need someone to talk to. <laughs> and that alters what happens next as opposed to if you meet them with their defensiveness, 
with your defensiveness, then that's where things escalate, spill over, ruin days, ruin months, change jobs. Yeah, it's it's a big one though. I think of of how that does come into the workplace, and you know, leaders need to learn how to prevent and also enhance the right, I suppose, value sets within that space as well. Absolutely, and this is this is what my work really is about. It's how do we take this information about one's own mind so that you can then understand how other people's minds work as well. And with that, you take away all of the suffering. Like seriously, we have the answer to our own suffering and the suffering that we put on others. All those stories we create, once leaders understand that they can help their teams reduce internal suffering, it'll reduce the physical ailments that they have, it'll reduce the way that they treat their families when they go home. It it, it has this knock-on effect that is so transformative and then it opens up when you're not dealing with all that suffering and it is suffering if you think about all these experiences that happen in the workspace then there's creativity then there's collaborations then there's excitement and you know anything can happen when there isn't that toxic energy at work and I think a lot of workplaces they're building out their people strategies they're they're wanting to place people at the center of everything that they do to really build that workplace culture and build those thriving workplaces. What would be something that all leaders should be considering as they're looking at 2024? It's, you know, so much has changed in the workplace, especially after years of COVID. You've got hybrid working environments. You've got a lot of younger generation coming through that have started off in the workplace by working from home on Zoom what are some of the key strategies do you think that key leaders should consider to bring this to fruition to actually, I actually see this as some, something that could really enhance one leadership and second of all, building those thriving workplaces. It's a really good question. So the thing for leaders is once they have mastered how they operate, then they can share this information. They can train up their crew with how their individual team members operate there's an understanding then there's a language and this is what I've done with my book and my courses I want to introduce the jargon of therapy so that people can call it what it is without just making it personal this is normalize it I want to normalize it I want to normalize that oh that's the working of the ego there's the ego defense mechanisms this is what we do oh that sounds like trauma do you want to go and you know get some help for that and this is what we can offer then if we want to be truly people-centered I want to take a moment to introduce you to Naturally Gloom-Free, where lifestyle meets quality. Naturally Gloom-Free is a boutique bakery committed to crafting exceptional gloom-free products that are produced with high-quality natural ingredients and free from all additives and preservatives. When you are seeking to transform your menu or source a premium gloom-free product, Naturally Gloom-Free invites you to connect with them via their website, naturallygloomfree.com.au. People at the centre. You're not just putting people, you're putting their minds at the centre. And each person is, a, is going to have their own unique mind that they bring, remembering that that mind was shaped so long ago they're going to be bringing that into it. So there's no point addressing things that just use that and without addressing what's inside those minds. How those minds operate is how they're going to play it out in the workspace. So any leader, I would say, get trained on the ego, your ego defense mechanisms, share this with your team, put the jargon into the workplace so that it is normalizing these, you know, the experiences that people have. We don't want to really make anyone a problem we want to say actually the behavior is showing that there's some piece, a piece of work you need to do around this it's because it's hitting up some raw nerves but if everybody's got a sense that we're in this together and we're not pointing fingers about you're misbehaving it's like being getting a <laughs> report at school we want yeah. to feel safe to want to feel cr- safe yeah, creating that psychological safety that this is part of your learning journey it's absolutely your professional development your personal development as well and then people won't be spraying their stuff on others that's the thing because we there's a lot of emotional vomit that happens in workspaces and if people became aware that I'm doing something here I can be more self-responsible I can be accountable I can go and apologize because that was so out of line not because management told me to apologize 
but because I can truly see that I've hurt somebody. That's very different from a p- taking a position to wedge yourself, you know, up the up the ladder. <laughs> so Definitely. it's really about how do we treat people in a very humane way, understanding that everybody's operating from a similar place, but we play it out differently. So you mentioned that conflict arises from that unconscious patterns that can consciously be rewired for a healthier relationship and you've really highlighted that in your book as well which I have to say I've read a little bit but I need to continue reading especially after today's conversation can you share how bringing awareness to emotions and behaviors can really lead to that greater empathy compassion I suppose in light of what you're just saying there as well within the workplace that level of kindness that once you actually go on that self-discovery within yourself, you've got so much you can actually offer everyone around you. It's, it's spot on because when you realise that we're actually all the same, we are all the same. You and I are sitting here, we look different, but inside of us is a desire to kind of be in the world in a safe and protected way and also have this exploratory nature and have new adventures when, when you understand that we're actually all the same, that we just express it differently, we express our stuff differently, then there's no difference between us. So I, I have a high level of regard for myself and for you. And when you do that across your family, your, with your partner, with your extended family, friends, your neighbours, actually I don't love my neighbours, I will say that, but in general they're the least favourite ones, but I do try and recognise the sameness. When, when you can see, though, that this really is about everybody and in the workplace everyone's trying yeah, in their right. own way and even people who appear really problematic, it's not their fault that they're problematic. It's that they've been shaped by experiences that make their behaviour problematic. It doesn't mean they want to be like that. Right. So it's extending compassion to tricky people. Because it's not their fault, they're tricky. But I suppose how would you, because I see that as a completely agree and a lot of the time it's how people articulate themselves as well, which comes from mentorship and, and coaching and things they have around it. So as a leader, am I best to ask lots of questions with that person individually to help kind of understand more or that's more their personal journey? I would have, I think it's a great question. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Well, I don't think – I think for a leader I would actually have a product that yeah. they could do, that they could use to learn. Like I don't tool. think – A tool. Yeah. So it could be an online program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a really – and then maybe it could be using some in-house therapy or therapy that the business pays for. You know, there, that happens all the time. So I would be looking for can this person shift – once people understand, so if, if through, say, a training program of the ego and defence mechanisms and having a healthier mind, if they can be trained, then they're retainable. And if they get a few sessions, if they need that to go with it, then great. And they can then shift into a place that says, I don't need to be tricky anymore. I yeah. don't have to keep doing that. Or if I am tricky, I can own it. And then I can apologise for whatever I've done with my tricky bits. So I don't think it should be the leader sitting down and having the conversation about the ego and defence mechanism. I would have that as a tool that yeah, they can that just pull sense. out and say, hey, mate, come and look at this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> It'll really help. Or find the right coach, mentor externally yeah. that could partner with them to work on a strategy for Absolutely. That. So therefore it's separate to the working relationship as well. Yes. And that fear of judgment and everything else can be held separately but they're, they're actually building that new muscle mm. of how to come and, and communicate differently and, and more effectively. Um, I think that's a peers. great idea, yeah. So anything external, I don't think I'd want leaders to feel like they have to do that kind of psychological work. No. And I think it co- could cross boundaries. Absolutely. But it is about introducing the, the concepts and the jargon into the workplace in a way that people can, you know, be kind of aligned yeah, and wow. see their sameness. Yeah, I love that. That is fantastic. Gosh, there, there is just so much when it comes to workplace culture and, and where we need to go. I think like looking at some of the engagement scores over the last couple of years from even Gallup and things coming through, it's just, it, it is quite scary to see how low some of the numbers are and how actually just having more open conversations could really change that evolution absolutely and it'll change how people work in the workplace because you know everything that we do, we're talking about here is also what they're doing at home 
So whatever tricky bits are in the workplace, you can guarantee there's tricky bits happening at home as a parent or to one's partner, to friends. It might be disguised, but it still exists there. So everything that is exposed there has a knock-on effect that will just improve the whole quality of that person's life overall. So if they've had a fight, say, in the morning because of their tricky bits with their partner, then that's going to affect how they are at work. So we, we want to start seeing that this is a holistic issue, not just that person in the workplace. When, when they've had a big fight in the morning, they're going to come to work, they're going to be sending text messages potentially to their partner, they're going to be absorbed in the fight, they're going to be thinking about what happened, they're going to be absent but yeah. present. So how would one start looking at self-mastery? How would you start from that, uh, you know, wanting to show up as the best version of yourself, knowing that, you you know, you're living life too and every day is going to be a little bit different, different challenges that you're faced, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life. Where, do, where does self-mastery start for one individual so that we can all be accountable for ourselves and how we show up? There's several ways to do it. These are the products I've actually put out and that's why I created them because I wanted to take people on an individual journey as if they were coming into therapy with me. And so if it's about couples, the fight less, love more, it's the same principles, but it's how do I look at myself and what I'm doing to other people? But it's first that relationship with themselves and that is everything that I'm committed to. If we don't, if we don't know what we're doing, we have to learn what we're doing and we have to pull up our socks and find a part that's really self-responsible. So it's reading books, like I said, The Power of Now. It could be through reading other relationship books. It could be you know, just really getting knowledgeable about how do I, and curious, how do I behave? Why do I say that? Why do I talk to myself in that way? And to really get curious about where does it come from? Because you didn't create it. We don't create our next thought. We don't create the thought after that. It's a program. And we can change that program. We just need to know how to do that. And that is what my life mission really is about. So you've got these courses online mm -hmm. then for yeah. everyone. And that is, is it like a group that come together? Is it more from their own reading and self-discovery? Are you on those courses I'm on the, yeah, yeah in the programs there's yeah. videos and there's workbooks that go with them and they're self-reflective experiences as if I was sitting with someone in a consulting room they're the sorts of things I'd have them reflect on about why do you think you do that does it show up somewhere else and to really get people exploring you know what's inside my mind why do I do this otherwise that program is just going to take us through from today to the end of our days and then we're missing so much and suffering for what we don't know and then do you so so part of that like obviously you're asking the question of you know the why why do you do what you do and all those sort of things do you actually get the right like a, a response straight away from the clients that you're partnering with I it's a process yeah and it's a delicate one because we've we've built up those defensive structures for a reason so it's about learning that this is a this is coming from a kind and caring place that it's a non-judgmental space like I understand why people behave like they do so I'm not judging it it's just can we get behind it what is that that we're wanting to kind of get behind it and um, build the trust so that we can do that work together and so for people that are wanting to just even have a think about if they want to go on that journey of self-discovery can you give us I know you've spoken about the why but what would be three key questions potentially that one could ask themselves to just initiate this journey? The first one would be, why do I react to certain things? Because they're not universal. So not everybody reacts in the same way. So we've all got our individual hook inside of ourselves about what causes us to react and that would be one of them. Why do I react to this whereas someone else might not? There's another one which is my ego is my own unique lens on the world. How do I understand the stories I tell myself? And what do I do with the fact that I'm completely unreliable in there? Sometimes I think X and other times I think Y and sometimes I'm judgmental and other times I'm really kind. Why do I do this? There's reasons for it. 
And the next would really be is how does my mind affect my physiology and what do I do with that? Because wherever our mind goes, we're going to have a physical reaction to that and we need to know what is the reaction that happens. Do I get a tension in my stomach? Do my hands shake? Do I end up with a migraine? Do I get a sore throat? What happens to me based on the stories I tell myself? And there's a physical residue and that is really important to locate so that we don't just keep piling this sort of lack of ease and dis-ease into our tank. So it's having strategy. So how can I get this out of my system is a really important one. How can I calm my nervous system down? Yeah, they're, they're pretty big questions. They're big questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can just see it, you know, even just stopping and just sitting there listening to you say those, they're, gosh, they're key questions to everyone should be asking themselves to just learn about yourself mm. as well. And definitely the, the, the key people in your life, 100%. And we don't always have awareness of what that is. So recently this year we went through a family bereavement and what I didn't know and I became aware of is that I felt the grief in my throat. I had never had that before, but it was how do I learn to release that grief from my throat? And it was interesting. I had to then question, why is it in my throat? What's going on there? Why? What's different? But we don't actually know where things are always going to land. So it's about acknowledging that there is a residue and we don't want to keep that located like that. I had a burning sensation. I wouldn't want to keep doing that for too long because that was an actual physical sensation that could cause harm if I keep having That's it over right. and over and over again. And so for yourself, and you don't need to say it on, on here, but like you did work out for yourself why you were feeling that and why Yeah, I'm it. happy to actually say it's because at the time that it was my stepdad, he, he passed away within five weeks of a diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis. But so much had been in the system about really supporting him and then supporting my mum. You know, she's 81 years old and then she wasn't eating because she was so distressed and there were things that he had done from being a pretty healthy man to suddenly not there. So she was collapsing and I felt like everything I had in my life was really just about being a vehicle of support without having a voice to what my own needs were. And yeah. so I had my own grief that was... That came through in that Suff scenario. But, yeah, yeah, but it was kind of getting stifled. My voice was being stifled about my own experience because I was having to prop people up. I'd do it all over again. But it was just this realisation that I wasn't able to express myself in a different way because I was really just being a support person. And that's okay for a period, but imagine if yeah. I kept going and going and going. I think, I think that's pretty powerful and, and huge condolences for, for your loss in your family this year. Thank you. A lot of people also have perceptions of others of like exactly that where you have probably felt that you've needed to be that pillar of strength and people naturally look at you like that as well. I know, gosh, if I think over the last, you know, 15 years, 16 years of raising children and you come across so strong because you've just, you know how to just get up and get on with it and get everything done and, and be there for everyone. I'll never forget my dad saying to me once, he goes, don't worry, I know you're going to be okay. You're the one that always lands on their feet. You're the one that is strong with everything that you do. And I remember sitting there going, oh, it was a moment in time and, and sorry, dad, talking about it. But yeah, where you go, oh, yes, I am. I'm, I'm always the one that will consciously show up and not hold back my grief. I will absolutely have my grief behind quite like a closed door with my husband, my children and my inner circle, but very much made me realize, I go, oh, it is so very true that naturally because I do always show up and therefore everyone that people don't actually sometimes see that you actually need that nurturing mm. as well, that Absolutely. you need that compassion. <laughs> yeah, it's a great realisation and that it gets taken offline but I think I didn't even have time to, to really focus on to, mine at all and yeah. I think that that's very common for a lot of people. Being but there for everyone else. It got worse and worse across time to the point that I kept thinking, I don't have my own life right now. Mm. I want my life back. And then it was good because over a period of time I put some boundaries in place and I was able to get my life back together again. But it actually was quite a confronting experience. And that's me having done all of this work. We all, no one's immune. 
no. from this stuff. Certainly I'm not immune from it, but my recovery can be faster because I'm more aware of what's inside. Yeah, and how to look after yourself personally yeah. as yeah. well, inside and out. Yeah. So, yeah, be the best version. So just on that with the, the self-mastery side of it, it is, you know, everyone's looking at personal strategies going into 2024. Having a healthy mind does, you know, yes, it starts with some of the key questions that you mentioned and really starting to think that through to go on that self-discovery journey. But having a healthy mind but also accountability for who you are and how you show up, is there anything that people should consider in this space? Because taking personal accountability and actually going, I am going to get that 1% better. I am going to show up and, you know, acknowledge that I'm not perfect and I am going to be able to, I want to give my best to, to others, but it does start with me showing up as the best version. What is What can we do as a couple of little tips and tricks to jump into that space? What I want to say is 1% sounds great. But once you really take that self-responsibility and know yourself, you're looking at 10%. You're looking at 20%. Love that. It is amazing how much you can do when you can deal with reality, when you're not using ego defense mechanisms to bat things away, where you can be in reality and just meet it head on without creating stories of woe, victimhood, superiority, judgment, and you're just in it. And I'll tell you an experience I had recently when I wrote my book. It was so awesome because I made a decision that from the beginning of it, I was going to write it in three months, and I made this decision right at the beginning that I was not going to be a victim of this process, even though I'd never written a book before. I wasn't going to be a martyr to it. I was going to say at the very beginning of each session that I was going to write, it is an honour and a privilege to have a book deal. And so I sat down from an, a really peaceful position that this is an honour and a privilege, not poor me having to spend the weekend doing it. I put myself in that position. So what that did was so much more than 1%. It was the most enjoyable three months because I didn't create any stories of woe. And it was just I got into flow states so beautifully because there's nothing that is going to kill a flow state more than stories that we create of our own suffering and why we're a victim of this moment. We're actually not. Life isn't happening to us. It's just unfolding as it unfolds. It's not, it's not persecuting us. And so we shouldn't take on those stories internally. So if you want to jump from more than 1% to 10%, 20%, just realise that the way you approach something is a choice. And every time you exercise the choice to not be a victim of life, to feel like, okay, here I go with enthusiasm and excitement, you're going to have a very different outcome and process. So it's the difference between loving a process and finding it hell. And so we choose how this goes. Powerful message right there for everyone. That is so very true. And it really is in those couple of words that we do say to each other in capturing that moment and celebrating the wins even in out of some of those toughest moments as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And the wins that you would never have imagined, they're not even just like your everyday ones. They can be really small things that are huge. Like I, I was really tenacious or I was really resilient or I kept going even though I was tired. Like These are big things as opposed to just giving into it. All of it requires celebrating. All of it definitely does. So thank you so much for sharing those incredible words of wisdom. I am going to ask, though, as a final question, which you've, I think you've just answered, but I am going to ask if there is that one more piece I like to close out the podcast with, a lesson that we can pass on to our next generation of leaders, founders coming through. If you had one piece of advice that you could offer and you know, really pass on, what would that be? I would say that life is so precious. I learned that as a 10-year-old with our family friend who died at 38. I have seen it across my life. Uh, it is so precious and what you do in it leaves a mark. So what you do inside of yourself and how you treat other people and you have a choice every day how you're going to be. It doesn't matter if you're in physical pain, you still have a choice. I'm not saying it's enjoyable, but you have a choice. Do you create stories of suffering about the pain or do you just find ways to manage it? 
when we go through difficult experiences, the death of a loved one, do you create stories about that or do you just deal with it? You can accept the pain of that as well. We have these choices every day and what we do affects us, our physiology, and it affects other people. So choose wisely how you're going to deal with your internal landscape. Incredible words of wisdom. Thank you so much and just so encouraging and inspiring of how much that internal mindset can just really shift our way forward. So thank you. I am going to ask one more final question because you have some incredible courses. Please share where everyone can go to have a look at your courses, to be able to have a look at your book, Relationship Reset, as well. Where do they head? They can head to lissyabrahams.com. Everything's on my website, the online programs and the book. And uh, there's lots of ebook and other free resources there as well. Wonderful. Well, as we conclude this enlightening episode with the incredible Lissy, I'm truly captivated by the depth of our conversation. Gosh, it's definitely going to be one. We're going to have to do another one in due course, but exploring all the intricacies of building a healthier relationship with oneself. Lissy, you have really shared those invaluable insights that resonate far beyond our personal lives. I encourage each of you to reflect on the wisdom imparted today and consider how it can elevate your journey towards self-discovery. This was not just a podcast, it was a resource for growth, understanding and empowerment. So a heartfelt thank you to Lissy Abrahams for sharing her wealth of wisdom and insights on building a thriving relationship with oneself. Thank you for joining me on Leadership Odysseys. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this incredible odyssey. Until next time... Lead with courage, lead with heart, and keep exploring the remarkable world of leadership. Enjoyed the journey? Hit the subscribe button, rate us, and leave a review if our stories ignited your leadership spirit. Your feedback fuels our odyssey.